Satan uses two strategies against God's people. We have talked about this often. It is our world in which we live. The first strategy is to crush God's people through persecution. The canvas of history is splattered with the blood of Christian martyrs. And it's being splattered as we gather here together today. But this is not Satan's only strategy against God's people. There is a second strategy. Satan's other strategy is to assimilate us. To draw believers close with alluring fleshly pleasures and captivating human philosophies. In the first strategy, Satan seeks to roar like a lion, to frighten, to intimidate, to destroy the righteous. In the second strategy, he seeks to welcome and to coddle and lull us to sleep until we find ourselves at home in his unrighteous lair. Last week we saw the lion roar. Lamech's song of titanic arrogance and defiance against God. Today, we view the other strategy in action here in Genesis 5 and especially in chapter 6. We return today to our consideration of the city as a theological theme running through the Scriptures. As we noted last week, the Bible is in some sense a tale of two cities. These two communities representing Two peoples distinguished by their relationship with God. So we noted last week the classic statement on this. And isn't there. Well, I'll read it to you. Two cities have been formed by two loves. The earthly city by the love of self, even to the contempt of God. The heavenly city by the love of God, even to the contempt of self. The former, in a word, glories in itself, the latter in the Lord. The one lifts up its head to its own glory. The other says to its God, you are my glory. You are the lifter up of my head, Augustine. Last week we looked at the city of Cain and the head of the offspring of the serpent and the head of the kingdom of man. Last week we noted there, and maybe some are gathering here today, and this is helpful to you. I know it was helpful to some last week, but please understand, we need to pay very careful attention out of the gate in the book of Genesis, lest we miss a very significant theme that runs through the Bible. If we do not see the unfolding of these two cities, if we do not see the unfolding of these two offsprings out of the gate, we will miss much. We start at chapter 3 and verse 15, that very significant statement as the Lord prophesies in the midst of the curse, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. So branching out from the serpent representing Satan and the woman, these two individual entities, then branching out from there, there will be an offspring And then comes back again, he, the singular, will bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The heel stomping upon the head of the serpent and the serpent will be destroyed. This prophecy doesn't just go away in Genesis, but in chapter 4 we enter on to a line which is then identifying the offspring of the serpent. Watch this line of people. Watch these individuals. Watch where they go. Watch how they speak. Notice that they are distinct from a second line, the offspring of the woman. And that brings us to the end of chapter 4. So we're seeing the rebellious people of Cain who murders his righteous brother. The first murder victim in history is a martyr for doing what is right, for honoring God and loving Him and and worshiping appropriately. But we noted in chapter 4 and verse 25 that Abel, who was murdered, is replaced with Seth. It's kind of an odd thing to say, isn't it? But Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth, for she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, in the place of Abel. We we have to catch this, or we miss the point of all of this seed that will then bear fruit throughout the rest of the Bible. She doesn't say, well, I've lost Abel, but I have Cain. She says, Seth, 
replaces Cain, who killed Abel. To Seth, then, verse 26, also a son is born. And we noted the people began to call in the name of the Lord. Not started to pray for the first time, but this offspring of the woman began to gather as the people of God in community, calling on the name of the Lord. Marked not by Lamech's self-arrogant, self-sufficient poem, but marked by prayer. Gathering to seek the face of the Lord. We prayed a bit earlier here, as we worked through the prayers, Eric led us, there was a participation as the people of God in the continuing process of coming before the throne of God as His people. I hope you pray individually. I hope you pray by yourself all the time when you're going about life and when you are in a point of noted devotion to Christ. But here, what a privilege. What a privilege to gather together as the people of God in line with Genesis 4, 26 and to seek Him in prayer gathered together. By God's grace as the offspring of the woman. If you're tracking with this theme, the offspring of the woman, the offspring of the serpent, the head of the offspring of the serpent, Cain, in chapter 4. If you're tracking with that, then chapter 5 as a genealogy makes perfect sense. In fact, I, I may have a few converts here. We're beginning to understand just how exciting biblical genealogies can be. They really are. I mean, how do you read a biblical genealogy? If you read the Bible through, that's a pattern in your life. You kind of get to this genealogy and go, weird names and a whole bunch of them. Way much more than I really want to endure to read through this. But we also tend to say then, really weird names, really long list of them, no practical purpose. That's a mistake. Let me hasten to say, as you're reading through the Bible, don't read through the genealogies every time. Don't pronounce every name. But it's a mistake to dismiss the genealogies of the Old Testament. A big mistake. I get it. I understand it's some work. Do you remember the series through Ezra? We read that whole list of names of all the people that came uh, from Babylon back to Israel, there was a man seated in the back row. And as I began to read one name after another, he just like sighed, looked up, put his head on the chair in front of him and just was like, you have got to be kidding me. How could this possibly be so ridiculous as to read through this whole list of names? I think I got him at the end, just a little bit never talked to him, and I've never seen him since, but uh, <laughs> we sent a message anyway. Let me tell you, Genesis 5 is beautiful. It is beauty in script. Why is this genealogy here? Chapter 4, Cain's lineage, the people who are the offspring of the serpent, he is the father, and we see them in cultural productivity. Second half of chapter 4. Chapter 5, here is the family tree that will lead ultimately to the one God promises to crush Satan's head. Here are the people of God. And here is hope in Genesis 5. The offspring of the woman takes root as God predicted, as He prophesied, as He promised. Here it is, chapter 5, verse 1. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, He made him in the likeness of God. Now that has to capture our attention because this has all been there already in the book of Genesis. We've already seen God create him, creating Adam. Why mention it again? This is the head of a new race in a sense. This is the people of God. He makes him in the likeness of God. That's echoes of 1, 26 through 28 in the creation of God. Verse 2, male and female, he created them and he blessed them and he named them man, Adam, when they were created. When 
Adam had lived 130 years. He fathered a son in his own likeness and after his image and named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years and he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Adam lived that he lived were 930 years and he died. Note likeness, image. Links to 126 and 28 where God chooses to make man in his own image and likeness. So when reading a genealogy, we've got to catch one idea or the ideas that stand out. And one idea that leaps off the page here is that the son that Adam bears in his image is not the firstborn Cain. It is Seth who replaces Abel. God creates Adam who bears Cain and Abel. Abel murdered by Cain. Seth replaces Abel. It is Seth replacing the righteous Abel that we are to grasp. The offspring of the woman are involved in the development of civilization as well, but they are characterized not by grand cities, Not by industry as such, but rather by calling on the name of the Lord. Watch this family tree, Moses is saying to us. Watch this. These are the people who pray, chapter 4 and verse 26. Here they are. Now when we say that, it doesn't mean everyone born in this line is a godly person. But it means that God is identifying this lineage through whom Messiah will be born. And there are representatives along the line that are pointing that way. There's probably, it's probably also very conceivable, if not almost to be assumed, that there are gaps in the genealogy. So, so son and father might mean fathered a grandson or a great-grandson or something of the like. But that being said, we also note here another very important point. Not just watch this family tree as this one is in the likeness of Adam, who is in the likeness of God, bypassing Cain and his city. But also we note that Adam dies. As God warned, the wages of sin is death. Can I say this pointedly? The wages of your sin is death. By disobeying God, Adam succumbs in the end to death as will his offspring. From here, with Adam's death, death's bell will continue to toll. Judgment. 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 930 years, you say, really? Well, put them in a pristine environment with no genetic mutations, and it's quite believable. Comparing it to other ancient stories and accounts of early days in those people lived 10,000 years old and 20,000 years old I think this is very realistic because the idea in the ancient narratives of competing nations and false uh, worship and false doctrines the other nations were saying get closer to the gods in the past and you live for thousands of years this is realistic in a pristine world not corrupted environmentally as the world that we live in. And without genetic mutations yet, with a pure bloodstream, 930 years is conceivable. And it's what the text says, and it's what we thus believe. But he dies. When Seth, verse 6, had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived after he fathered Enosh 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Seth were 912 years and he died. When Enosh had lived 90 years, he fathered Kenan. Enosh lived after he fathered Kenan 815 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enosh were 905 years and he died. When Kenan had lived 70 years, he fathered Mahalel. Kenan lived after he fathered Mahalalel 840 years, had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Kenan were 910 years, and he died. And Mahalalel had lived 865 years, he fathered Jared. 
Mahalalel lived after he fathered Jared 830 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Mahalalel were 895 years, and he died. Keep watching this line. Jared had lived 162 years. He fathered Enoch. Jared lived after he fathered Enoch 800 years. He had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God. And he fathered Methuselah 300 years, had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years, and Enoch walked with God. What hits you? This is where the genealogies begin to give you the tingles. He walked with God. That's odd. It's not what's been in the genealogy to this place. Everybody dies. They father people. They die. But Enoch walked with God. Not only that, but it says in verse 24 that he was not, for God took him. That's really strange. And that is to get our attention in a genealogy. He walked with God and he was not. What does it mean that he was not? Hebrews chapter 5, 11 and verse 5 helps us out with this. By faith, Enoch was taken up or raptured, that is, taken into glory apart from death, that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. This had to be immense fun. I mean, when you read between the lines there, he wasn't found. It was like, where did he go? But he's gone. What Hebrews helps us understand is that God is doing something unique here and is taking this individual apart from death into his presence. That's not something God does often at all. In fact, all we know about in the scriptures is Elijah, the only other one where this happens. But he does it here to say, death is not my master. I can take someone home. God is not ruled by death. And Enoch walked with God. This is the epitome of this line. A line of people who walk with the Lord, who know Him, who walk in His presence. Here's the family tree that will lead ultimately to the one that God promises will crush Satan's head. Enoch walking with God cheats death. But this son that will crush Satan's head, this son born into this line of people will defeat it. Unlike Enoch, Jesus died, but by entering death, he overcame it for his people. He walked with God. A direct contrast to Cain. Do you see that again? Often this, and here particularly, there's this comparison of the genealogies. With Cain, he walked away from the presence of the Lord. Enoch is walking toward the presence of the Lord. He's walking with God in fellowship and love. It is Eden restored in some sense on earth as Enoch loves the Lord and walks with him. In fact, Jude 14 and 15 tell us that Enoch preached repentance to his world. He spoke for God, a man of godliness. Watch him, watch his line, the author tells us. Verse 25, when Methuselah had lived 187 years, he fathered Lamech. Methuselah lived after he fathered Lamech 782 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Methuselah were 969 years and he died. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Lamech were 777 years and he died. Now, once again, the genealogy turns a bit here and is drawing attention very purposefully to this situation of Noah and his birth. Now, Lamech, you remember, Cain's line had Lamech in it. And the way that these genealogies are ordered is very purposefully. And so the two Lamechs are meant to gain our attention, to compare them together. Other names could have been listed. There were other godly people. There were other wicked people. There were people who spoke poems like Lamech, who defied God. And 
could have been chosen to be described here in the line of Cain. But the author uses these two Lamechs intending that we would compare them. As we think first of Methuselah, let's back up just a moment. In thinking of Methuselah, we have the longest recorded lifespan in history here, and thus a good place to note that in Cain's line, no one's age at death is given. God's people live long, fruitful lives is one of the intentions of the, of the text. This doesn't mean that ungodly people always die earlier than godly people. It doesn't mean that godly people don't ever have an untimely death, die at a young age. Of course not. But the text is emphasizing the longevity of those who spend their lives walking in fellowship with the Lord. When you know God, you enjoy a quality of life that is unique. And this quality of life can be seen in Methuselah, who lives longer than we believe anyone ever has lived, possibly 969 years. But it's his son Lamech, whose statement of hope in his son Noah, that is meant to really gain our attention. Notice what he says about Noah here in verse 29, that out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work, and from the painful toil of our hands. Hard to know precisely what he means, but as one has noted, note the connection between the genealogy and geography. God cursed the ground. Noah is in some way going to reverse the curse. Lamech believes that his son Noah, in some way, is part of God's redemptive plan. And again, so there is a purposeful contrast. Cain's Lamech, you remember him in 4.23 and 24, arrogant self-sufficiency, a murderer, a polygamist saying, I'm somebody, I'm a big man, and I don't need God. This Lamech is saying, this world needs God. It needs deliverance. It needs rescue. I'm tired of living in this cursed world. Where is the deliverer? Maybe my son, Noah, in some way. We don't know exactly what he means, exactly what Lamech is intending here, but in some way my son is going to be part of the rescue. And indeed he is. We wouldn't be sitting here today if it wasn't for Noah. purposeful contrast what is also interesting here and watch this also in genealogies we've been going vertically this individual to this individual to this individual we get to this point and what happens we go horizontal whenever you go horizontal in a genealogy the person setting it up is screaming at you to pay attention When did we go horizontal last week? Genesis 4 and the children of Cain. Those children laid out there, this is civilization, this is Cain's city. These are the power brokers in the world subduing the earth. It goes horizontal. Now we come here to Lamech's son, Noah, and with Noah, verse 32, he was a 500 years old when he fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Doesn't mean that they're triplets. In fact, Shem wasn't the oldest. They don't read too much into that, but it fans out. It goes horizontal and deals with the three sons of Noah. That is intended to arrest our attention, to draw us back to the comparison with Cain's genealogy. So Noah, as a son of the people of God in whom great hope is placed, is described here as having three sons, and the one, of course, of most significance here will be Shem. But what is also being laid out, which we don't see just right at this point, but is that there are ten generations before the flood, and there are ten generations that are described after the flood. And I think it's only described. It's not that there were just ten. But in these generations, Moses is laboring to say, before the flood, Noah. After the flood, who? Abraham. Watch this. Ten generations in genealogy after the flood is Abraham. Ten generations here 
The last one coming into the flood is Noah. Watch these individuals for God's saving purposes. Now, you've been following me here, but let me just picture it if if I can. But you notice the first line far to the right, in the likeness of God. God creates Adam in the likeness of God. We then see that phrase repeated as Adam names Seth, who is a son in his own likeness. We're to see that connection and recognize that Seth is being singled out here as the one God is identifying and asking us to watch. We also notice that there are only three who are named in this genealogy. There are many who are fathered, but there are three who are named. That draws attention to that emphasis that you find there in yellow. God names Adam, Adam names Seth, and Lamech names Noah. Highlighting the significance of Noah and of this line. There are two places in the genealogy that slow down and say something unique about an individual. And so, with Enoch, he walked with God and God delivered him from death by taking him directly into his presence. And... Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief. Drawing attention to the significance of Noah. So I don't know if there's any converts or not, but this is exciting as we think through this. What the author is doing and how he's drawing attention through such an ancient text to these individuals. But how do you close chapter 5? I mean, there's hope. There's joy. There's God is at work. He's delivered someone from death. He's chosen an individual. He's going to deliver us from the curse ultimately. But there's obviously some somber moments as we consider this as one dies after another. As a graduate student studying history many, many moons ago, I worked for the Minnesota Historical Center and... uh, My very skilled job as a historian was to read newspapers and record obituaries. (laughs) I wrote down a name and two dates. That was my job in graduate school. It took a lot of brain power. It actually took a lot to stay awake. Uh, But that's what I did. That job had an effect on me. Uh, All day long, not all day long, but when I was working, I'm reading death, death, death. Death. And I realized that most people, because of the newspapers today, today we have these long obituaries and that kind of thing. Back then, you were a name and two dates unless you were murdered. You were a name and two dates unless you were somebody really, really important. And it really hit me. I'm just going to be a name and two dates. We're going to just be a name and two dates. It's what goes on between those dates. That matters. Most people end up as little more than that. History never noting, not recording who we are, what we've done, how we've lived. But never, ever forget this. When your life is identified with the people of God, you are royalty in God's eternal family. And that takes us back to that Ezra moment. And reading those names of the people that came back to the land. We may just be a name, but imagine if one of those names was yours. How it would stand off the page. How it would identify who you are. How you would rejoice that you were among that group. That's where we are today. Because of Christ. We are royalty in God's eternal family. To this world, we may be a name and two dates, but we are the children of God through Christ. And that's all that matters. How do I know if I'm a child of God? Let me help you here with genealogies. How do I know if I'm a child of God? Where does the New Testament start? What's the first chapter of the New Testament? The first chapter is a genealogy. It's 
It's repeated once more in Luke. That's the end of genealogies. And where does it end? In Jesus of Nazareth. And who's his son? It's the end of the genealogy. He has no physical son. It's all pointing to Matthew 1. This is him. This is that representative who will crush Satan's head. We've got to go through the genealogy. Not be born into it now in that way, but to know where it ended in Jesus of Nazareth. All of the Bible is pointing us there unmistakably to Christ. It's no mistake that the New Testament begins with a genealogy. The Old Testament has been screaming this point to us. And it's telling us this point here in chapter 5. Which brings us back to the two strategies of Satan against God's people. The one is to crush this line. That's why Cain murders Abel. But the other is to assimilate this line. To bleed it out. One is to bleed it out in murder. The other is to bleed it out figuratively by losing its spiritual power. Satan can win that way too. Satan can grasp people away from the people of God this way. And so we see from hope in chapter 5 to disaster in chapter 6. And the offspring of the serpent wins control. In verse 1 of chapter 6, when man began to multiply in the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive. And they took as their wives any that they chose. God's blessing, His providential support enables man to continue filling and subduing the earth. But a dark cloud gathers over the report with the phrase, the daughters. That again gains our attention. What's the point of daughters? It's setting us up here for what is to come. Nothing evil about the daughters whatsoever, but it gets your attention. And if it's possible that men read that just a little differently than the women, that was exactly the point. Daughters. Not only daughters, but attractive ones. Beautiful ones. We have echoes here of what? We have echoes here of Nama, the beautiful daughter of Lamech and Zillah in chapter 4 and verse 22. The beautiful daughter that represented perhaps the beginnings of beauty in that industry. We find these daughters here again. And they're attractive. And they took wives of any of them that they chose, the sons of God. Who are the sons of God? It it can refer to godly men. It can refer to angels. It can refer to powerful rulers. And sons of God are used all three ways in the Bible. The most obvious meaning in this context is that it refers to Seth's line of godly men. To introduce angels here does not fit the context whatsoever. And angels do not marry. They I don't know, perhaps could somehow find a way to cohabit, but they don't marry. Jesus told us this, and there's no indication of ever that that was different. It's not angels that are being introduced here. Certainly there are perhaps as powerful people here, but again, I think the most natural reading is that the daughters are not specifically identified as the daughters of Cain's lineage, but some of them would have been. The point is that men of the godly line began to take wives and possibly multiple wives on the basis of what? On the basis of physical attraction. Not on the basis of godly inclinations. It's interesting here in verse 2, it says that the sons of God saw, the Hebrew word ra'ah, that they were attractive, the Hebrew word tov. In Genesis 3, 6, guess what? Same words. Eve saw ra'ah, that the fruit was tov. Attractive. Beautiful. The linkage is unmistakable. They saw the candy. They saw the beauty. They liked it. Connecting to the forbidden fruit that Eve saw and took. So godly men are attracted to the beauty of women and took in marriage women who please them physically. Here's Satan's second strategy. Sensual pleasure above God's purpose. Sensual pleasure above God's purpose. Come on in, Satan says. I have a beautiful home here. 
It's a nice place. There's lots of pleasures that abound here. Come on in. In the first place, he's roaring and crushing and killing and murdering. But in the second place, he's saying, come join me. It's a beautiful world here. Sensual pleasure. Let me make crystal clear. Sensual pleasure in marriage is good. It is a God-blessed thing. Don't read it wrongly. But the attraction, good looks. The motivation, sensual pleasure. The justification, I want her. What God thought did not matter. And so here, the sons of God are beginning to act like the Lamech of Cain's line. We want and will do what we desire, and we will choose the wives that we draw to ourselves. Again, very possibly here, also polygamous, multiple wives. But if this draws us back to Nama and the beauty industry, we realize that this industry is alive and well, that the people... (coughs) of Satan's offspring, that man's kingdom, the city of man, is producing this beauty for everyone to enjoy at a never-ending rate and with increased capacity. In fact, in my lifetime, the capacity of Satan to promote the beauty, particularly of women, is unprecedented in the history of humanity. The internet has taken this industry and it has thrown it everywhere with a click. Men of God looking at the beauty of the female body is nearly overwhelming in the appeal to the eyes, even for godly men. But let us confess together right here. And men particularly, I know it's an issue for women as well, join in here as it is for you, but men particularly, because of how we're wired, how God has made us, the importance of the eye gate and the utter beauty that we see there. Mistake it as somehow we're all twisted and messed up and when they shouldn't see any beauty. They're beautiful. God made beautiful women everywhere. That's not the point. This is the point. There is a pleasure that is far greater. And that is the pleasure that we find in God. There is a pleasure that is far greater, and that is the pleasure that He finds in us when we walk in obedience to His will. And His will is crystal clear. One woman for life. To be a one Man, woman. There's not a red-blooded, live believer man that doesn't find that a challenge. But we've got to know it. There's a greater pleasure. And when we choose Satan's pleasure, here's the beauty. Have it. Lust after it. Want it recognize it when that is laid out there for us we are being given a choice we think to enjoy the beauty what we're being given the choice to do is to enjoy that beauty at the cost of god i'm saying this beauty now i don't need the beauty of the lord and i don't need the beauty of his looking at me with pleasure that's not an exchange And that's precisely the way that Cain's line wants us to think. What we must learn to do is to replace the pleasure with the pleasure of God and the wonder of walking in obedience with Him in a restored Eden in our heart. This is what was taking them down. They weren't asking God what He thought. They weren't pursuing this as among godly people where, again, within marriage, there's great freedom to enjoy the beauty But that's not what they were doing. Verse 3, then the Lord said, then, in response to this, then the Lord said, my spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh and his days shall be 120 years. 
To me, it's unfortunate that the word abide is used here. Go with the margin if you have the ESV, but that is to contend with. I'm not going to contend with man forever here. I'm not going to put up with this forever. This is wickedness. His day shall be 120 years. What's that mean? Not 930 anymore, not 969 anymore, now down to 120? I don't think so. I know that's a common interpretation. I think what God is saying is you've got 120 years. Everybody. And then the flood. I am going to wipe man off the face of the earth in 120 years. And an Enoch is out there preaching. And a Noah is out there preaching and saying the day is coming. Judgment is coming. Flood? What on earth is that? Rain? What is that? That's what they're saying at this point. There hasn't been rain. There isn't rain. It's not how the atmosphere worked at the time. Judgment is coming in 120 years from this point. Verse 4, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them. A lot to confuse us here, but let's get it straight. On the earth in those days. So the Nephilim, which means the strong ones, the mighty ones, were already there when the sons of God and the daughters of men came together along these lines. The Nephilim were already there. They're not the children of these two. The Nephilim are already there on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they, the daughters, bore children to them, the sons of man. Does that make sense? So they're having children now with this orientation and they are joining among the Nephilim. Their children, not the Nephilim, but their children joining the Nephilim, these were, verse 4, the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Literally, the men of a name. The children, I mean, we got it all going here now. We have the sensual pleasures, but we also have the power game. These people have a name. They are God's people. But along with the Nephilim, along with the people of gigantic influence, these now were men with a name. They were men of great standing, such as Lamech of Cain's line. And they claimed to have a name. The children of this unholy union between the offspring of the serpent, the offspring of the woman, joined the ranks of the Nephilim, the people of God now drinking at Satan's cup of power and control in disregard of God. This is so horrible. God's people now saying, we can have it all. We can have the women. We can have the power. We can have the prestige. Look at us. No more second tier, second class for us. We too have great names on the earth. It was an attitude utterly opposed to the spirit of Seth's Enoch who walked with God. It was in lockstep with Cain's Enoch, the namesake of man's city. God's people who walked in the line of the martyred Abel were no longer the weak people. They had gained seats of power alongside the world. Satan had invited them into his lair and they said, we like it here. Now, please understand, it's not evil for God's people to become powerful in the world as such. But here's the thing. When we become powerful in this world, when we begin to jockey for the position where we're more than a name in two dates, we've got a name. We've got a name people are going to remember. We've got power that people are going to notice. When we go there... It's what you do to get there that's the problem. Family often gets left aside. Prayer often gets left aside. Gathering with God's people, that's not going to help you be powerful. Set that aside as well. It's what we leave off when we pursue such power and a name. That's the problem. 
If God in His mercies allows you to be faithful to your family, faithful to your church family, faithful to His Word, a godly person, and He leads you to become powerful in some way, there's nothing wrong with that. It's what we sacrifice. And what they sacrificed was, we're not talking to God at all. We see the beauty. We're going after it. Now we have power. Look at us. Look at what we have done and look at what we have become. That's the problem. And I ask you, parents, with children in the home particularly, grandparents, as you relate to your grandchildren, who are the heroes? Who are the heroes that you are promoting in your own life as you look at heroes, but who are the heroes you're talking to them about? I know my hero growing up was a guy that had vetted a thousand women, but he could dunk a basketball. I thought that was pretty cool. I didn't care about his moral life. It just was how good a basketball player he was. It's all right to like a basketball player, like some sports athlete for their athletic ability, but let's make no mistake, who we see as heroes is where we're tracking And if the hero you are tracking is on drugs, is sexually promiscuous, is using power over others, don't drink it. Get some new heroes. Get the kind of people who die for Christ and hear their stories. Parents, we got a job to do. Let our children know who the real heroes are. Because in this world, it's not Jesus' people. It's Satan's people. That's the big names. But on this particular playing field, Satan had won a strategic victory. He had welcomed the godly line into his place of power and pleasure and prestige, and the city of God had nearly fell extinct. Fact verse 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. God saw. See the connection. They saw these attractive women. God's watching too. And what does he see? Sinful living had become universal on the earth, deeply entrenched in the heart of man and never ending in its display. Wide, deep, never ceasing. So verse 6, the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth. That is, it grieved him. It grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry. It grieves me that I have made them. God's not fighting with his own sovereignty here. He's just saying, literally, this is horrible. I don't want this anymore there's a lot of ancient flood stories all kinds of them i think as we would look at it as bible believers these are twisted accounts of something that actually happened that's why there's so many flood narratives in ancient cultures because it happened and they all knew it happened so they all told their story you know what's absent from all the stories of all the nations sin the gods got upset about this, or they did that, or they were bored, and so they flooded the earth, or whatever. There are all kinds of stories, but it's always free of sin. Scripture lays this out fairly. Honestly, it's judgment. And in salvation history, we'll end up here at the end one more time, book of Revelation. But before the rains fall and the floods begin to rise, a ray of hope, verse 8, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. This Noah who's been highlighted in chapter 5 now finds favor in God's eyes. Favor, that is grace, not earned favor because of his good deeds. And yet he was a righteous man in whom God took pleasure. Noah is then a ray of hope that pierces the gathering clouds of judgment rumbling ominously in the background. It is a depraved and corrupt world, but Noah will not be overcome by the judgment. All the men of renown, all the men with a name, all the powerful Nephilim will be wiped out in judgment, but not Noah. He will live. 
Why? Because the most powerful and preservative force on the planet is the favor and grace of God. Remember that when you want to look where you shouldn't look. Remember that when you want to pursue what you shouldn't pursue. Remember that when you look at a world that laughs at what you believe and where you stand. The most powerful and preservative force on the planet is the favor and the grace of God. It will never through eternity be anything else. To which city do you belong? At birth we are all the serpent's offspring, the people judged as wicked and wiped off the planet. That's us. You say, it's not me. You say that it's not me at birth, it's because you don't understand the holiness of God, you don't understand the law of God, and you don't understand how you've broken His law. But His judgment is just. We are born into Cain's line. You are born as the offspring of the serpent. You are born destined for God's judgment as I am. But by God's grace, you can choose to identify with the city of God and His people. The way there, the Old Testament is riddled with genealogies, steering us unmistakably where? To that genealogy that ends with Jesus Christ. Jesus of Nazareth has no physical offspring, but He is the one to whom the entire Old Testament pointed for centuries that He might be the Son, the Father, the life spring, the hope of many sons and daughters and the fulfillment of Genesis 3.15. Death is the ultimate lamb that Abel's sacrifice prophesied. The ultimate victory over death that Enoch's rapture prophesied. Jesus didn't cheat death. He beat it. He went through it and blew it up with his resurrection. That's our hope. His death in my place, paying the cost of my sin to provide forgiveness of sin, of which we've sung today, and to speak of His resurrection power. Oh, think of these chapters in light of 1 John. Think of what John's thinking. Put this all together as he speaks to us. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. Does that word seed not now make way more sense to you than it did? His seed, literally. His offspring. I mean, it is figurative, but uh, is his offspring. He abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. There's a new birth through Christ. We're born into the family of God. By this, it is evident Who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil? Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. Cain, Lamech of Cain's line. Nor is the one who does not love his brother, Cain, as he killed Abel. Is the seed abiding in you? Have you been born again through Christ? This is the question. If so then you are a man or a woman with a real name. It's not what this world judges and thinks. It's how Christ sees us when we enter his presence. If your name is in the Lamb's book of life, you are as rich as anyone will ever be. You are as complete in Christ as anyone could ever be. If you're not there, we encourage you to seek Christ today. Talk to someone as you leave and allow us to point you to salvation in Him further if it's not been clear already. If it is crystal clear to you now that Christ is Lord, His death, His resurrection are your salvation, I encourage you now to stand with me and as we pray, I would encourage you to seek the Lord.